So as I mentioned before, we are blessed to have Rabbi Paul Strasko of Congregation Kol Shalom on the island with us today. Uh, he's going to be helping us break down this question of what do we do with the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament and all that. So thank you for joining us. I think I'm the only one other than my wife smiling because I really love this text. It's one of my favorite ones from the Torah. And I love the feeling of shock that I see. Now, deliberately, I chose one of the most brutal texts that I possibly could because if we're going to be addressing this, let's jump right into it. Let's, let's actually look at a text that we cannot hide from. There's no way to try to put a nice silver coating on a text with such brutality and with such anger and such venom. So before we hit that, a couple stories on how we might be able to perceive this. The first story comes from my first post as a rabbi. I was an associate rabbi in a French-speaking country. I will not say which one, and I will not say which city. I guess if you look me up on the web, you'll figure it out. But uh, it was my first or second month there, so I was still allowed to speak English. That's not a joke. My third, by my third month there, I was only allowed to speak uh, French, and uh, the entire board of the community was told that they were not allowed to speak a word of English with me, even though some of them were German speakers, which I am a fluent German speaker. So I was still able to function within the language of, of my birth. And I had been invited to the senior rabbi's house. And uh, this gentleman had been in this community who was essentially the founding rabbi and had been there 40 years. And uh, highly respected, not only in this congregation, but in the city and indeed in the country. He was a spokesman for Judaism and, and a highly respected voice. And is quite an amazing rabbi. So I'd had dinner at his house, and this was... Uh, a magnificent French fair with wine that you cannot possibly imagine. As good as you think the wine is around here, oh my goodness, the wine that they would have in these French-speaking countries. And it was a humbling, beautiful experience to be part of such a dinner. And as I left, I expressed gratitude, and I looked at the senior rabbi and his wife, and I said, that was an amazing e evening. I just want to thank you guys so much for having me over. End of discussion. The next day was a work day, and I had a call on my intercom from the senior rabbi saying, Paul, please come into my office. It didn't sound very happy, so all right, fine. So I went to the office. I am very disappointed in you. I found your disrespect last night to be uh, extremely profound. I was baffled. What disrespect? You referred to me and my wife as you guys. So I stopped and thought and remembered, and I said, oh, well, that's colloquial American with no disrespect whatsoever. Yes, but if you had dinner with Michelle and Barack Obama, would you say the same thing? And I said, actually, yes, I would. <laughs> in the United States of America, there is no problem, even in very fine company, to say, what a wonderful evening we had with you guys. It is a type of colloquial speech. And I don't think he believed me, but at least the anger was released for a little bit. Second story, different side of this, actually goes back to a day not unlike today where I was actually speaking at a church. This was whew, over 15 years ago, or nearly 15 years ago at this point. And it was around the time that Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out. And one of my academic areas is first century history and, and uh, uh, the milieu which brought Christianity out of, out of Judaism. And so I'd been asked to speak about this. And it was a congregation that was very disturbed by the imagery, as was I. If you love the movie, it's okay. But 
I did not love the movie so very much for a variety of reasons. And so I was asked to speak, and then later on that weekend to give a sermon. And it was one of those sermons that went over well, lots of crying eyes and that sort of thing. And after the service, one of the deacons in the community came up and shook my hand with a very manly handshake. What a wonderful speech. You seem very spiritually evolved, which is why I can't understand how you could be involved with a religion that has such a horrible vision of God. And it actually took me a moment to actually realize that he was talking about God, <laughs> the God of the Hebrew Bible or the God of the Old Testament. And so there are a couple elements we have to challenge in ourselves in order to be able to even address this question. And the first one is internal, and the second one is external. The internal is being aware that we hear things the way that we want to hear them, and not necessarily the way that they're meant. So when I had the conversation with the senior rabbi, and again, a very fine gentleman, I said words with an intention. Before they got to his brain, they went through a filter, almost external to him, so that by the time they got to the brain, he didn't hear what I said or what I intended. He heard what he heard. And they became two completely and utterly different things. This is how when I'm on an airplane with my yarmulke showing very boldly, which, by the way, I don't do anymore because five-hour conversations in a flight to uh, Philadelphia where you have someone who's trying to proselytize you is no longer very fun for me. But the one woman who many years ago on a flight to Chicago looked at me and said, oh, you're Jewish. Yes, I am. So why don't you believe in grace? And again, a moment of, oh, we're speaking two different languages because for you, you're talking about a deep value and for me, we're coming from a completely different perspective on all of these things. And the second part, once we understand that we've got a filter that we use to hear everything that we hear, do we actually listen to the words that are spoken or do we listen to what we want to hear from that? The other side of that is the recognition that there are cultural differences, that different sorts of cultures bring about different sorts of thoughts. And we have to then, when we're looking at the Old Testament, which from this moment on I will call the Hebrew Bible because that's much more comfortable for me because to me it's not old. It's actually something that renews itself every day. And when we look at that, one of the first things we have to look at is the language of that series of books and poetry is Hebrew. And anyone who's ever done any translation from one language to another knows that the concept of translation is absolutely an illusion. There's no such thing as a translation. It's interpretation. It's like a game of telephone where someone whispers a sentence in someone's ear. By the time you get to the end of the congregation, you won't recognize the original sentence, even though each person believed that they faithfully passed on what was passed on to them. Translation is an art form. And even with a simple text, there are more than one ways to approach it. So when we hear words like we heard today, reading them in Hebrew is a profoundly different experience. And as a matter of fact, that particular text is one of the hardest to translate in the entire Hebrew Bible. It's from a part of Deuteronomy that we call Ha'azinu. It starts off with the words Ha'azinu, which is lend ear, or we shall lend ear, or you shall lend ear. And even that is various possible translations for one word, and it's one of the hardest parts of the Torah to translate because it is filled. About 10% of the words are found nowhere else in the entire Hebrew Bible. And so you have radically different translations of those texts. How complicated is it? 
Anyone who wishes to quote Genesis 1-1, other than Colin, Pastor Cushman, please raise your hand and give me Genesis 1-1. Come on, you can do it. I know you can do it. Okay, good. In the beginning. Thank you. Awesome. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. Right? The period's right there. Problem is, it's not there. Because in the Hebrew Bible, there's no punctuation. Every once in a while, there are gaps in the text that you can maybe use as a paragraph. But who says that the punctuation is there? Who says the end of the first thought is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Who says that? Well, the answer to that is, is a variety of people who interpreted the text over time. And it became with the King James Bible a tradition that the sentence ended there. It's not the only tradition, but that becomes so influential in the poetry of our tradition. And the question is, well, why does it really matter? Well, here's why it matters. Let's even go less than that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as a translation of Bereshit Bereshit Again, no period there. So that first word, Bereshit. Be is a word in and of itself. It's a preposition that means in or within or on. Reshit means an act of creation or an act of beginning. Specifically, a type of creation that comes from nothing, creation ex nihilo. So in a moment of creation ex nihilo. Here's the problem. I pronounce that b-re-shit. Does not mean in the beginning. Here's the problem. That one word, depending on how you put the vowels, because the Hebrew language does not have vowels. Those were added 2,000 years later. So with no vowels there, I can say b-re-shit, which is the tradition we have, or b-re-shit. Bareshit means in the beginning. It's a vowel that looks like a little T that goes under the first letter. But what actually is there through tradition is a vowel that looks like two dots, says Bereshit, which actually translates to in a beginning. One vowel, first letter of the 586,000 letters that are in the Torah itself, the five books of Moses. First letter, one vowel change, and all theology can change. Because is there a difference between in the beginning and in a beginning? Yes, it changes everything. It changes every thought. But because we had in the beginning and one of those poetically beautiful and horrible translations, by the way, from an accuracy standpoint, but one of those beautiful translations in history, the King James Bible, we are stuck with the thought of at one point that was the beginning when our theology can simply be saying we can express our existence in a manner of many beginnings and we can change and transform as a people with one thought that comes from one vowel change that's not even there on the very first letter of Torah. So when we read and we hear the vengeful God, is that actually what we're hearing? Or is that one of many interpretations that's possible? So when we then look at the more macro structures of our tradition, then we have to say, well, culturally, is there a difference between how we hear these texts and how these texts were meant. Now, obviously, I wasn't there when these texts were written, and it was expressed beautifully over here that the text served a radically different purpose in that moment than the Christian Bible did later on. That is absolutely true, but I want to take it farther. They come from a radically different language, which comes from a radically different way of thinking. I don't know if anyone speaks a second language. My wife and I are both fluent German speakers, and I can tell you, when I speak German, I have to think in a completely different way, because... The verb comes at the end of the sentence, 
And unlike English, you cannot have a run-on sentence. I cannot begin speaking and just let it keep on going on and on and on. And eventually I'll find a verb and eventually I'll find an idea. And everyone understands what I'm saying. In Germany, that doesn't work. You cannot do this. Alles muss in Ordnung sein. Everything has to be in order. And so when I think in German and speak in German, my mind reorders itself in order to do that. Radically different way of thinking. I even use a slightly deeper voice in German. I don't know why. It sounds better. German sounds better with a low voice than with a high squeaky voice. I don't know. But the reality is, is Germanic, German languages, English and German are both in the same language group. Hebrew and English are in two completely different language groups, two different ways of thinking. So it's not just different books for different times. The Jewish religion is based on Semitic thought which is as different from English thought or European linear thought as Chinese is from English. Two different language groups. Try to translate Chinese into English sometime. This is actually what we're dealing with when we're dealing with translating Hebrew or interpreting, interpreting Hebrew into English. When I read the Torah, I experience it in Hebrew in a radically different way than when I read a translation. That's why I can laugh and be so amused at the translation because I'm looking at it from a Semitic standpoint, from how we speak to each other. If you go to the streets of Tel Aviv, and if you haven't had a chance to visit the Holy Land, I highly recommend you do. If you get onto a bus, you're going to experience one thing. Jews yelling at each other, loudly and violently. And it's unpleasant because we come from such a polite society. Pacific Northwest, shaking everyone's hands, telling everyone, let's do coffee sometime, and never really meaning it. Okay? We're very, very polite people. You go to Israel, there's no politeness whatsoever. It's a society under stress in profound ways, and that anger boils over on a regular basis, but it's also a cultural value to express your emotion without holding it back. So if someone does something stupid on the bus, you're going to hear in Hebrew, And in Hebrew, that sounds really cool. And so we hear that and we get frightened until we understand that the cultural value beneath that is why would I hold back what I'm thinking in this moment? We're all part of the same family. Why would I lie to you? Why would I act polite when something happened that angered me? But if we're watching that from a Pacific Northwest standpoint, we're very upset. Yep. (laughs) And it's unpleasant. When you live in Israel for a while, it's normative. And so if you look at the entire Hebrew Bible as a cultural expression from a different language, a different thought type, also at a different time, it starts coming clear that even thinking of God as a wrathful God is such a minimal part of what we're experiencing. And I'll finish this off with a couple other thoughts of how we can interpret this. There was a book, I don't know if I recommend that you read it, by a French author by the name of André Gide called The Immoralist. And the immoralist is a story essentially of a man who has a perfect night with his wife and then spends the rest of his life attempting to recapture the passion and the purity of that moment. And it's impossible. Anyone who's ever had a mountaintop experience knows that you cannot recapture it. 
As a matter of fact, if you spend your life trying to recapture that, your life will become nothing more than a series of spiraling downhill, attempting to find something that is unattainable. You might have a different mountaintop experience, but you will never have the same one. That mountaintop experience exists in its own moment forever. And if we live trying to re-experience that thing, our life will become a meaningless attempt to re-experience something that was truly a singular moment. And if you look at the history of Judaism, Judaism had two moments of beginning. The first moment of beginning was a cultural moment. The time when the Eternal said, according to our mythology, to Abraham, go from the country of your birth to the land that I will show you. The beginning of a different life in a different place with a different series of potential values to evolve over time to become Judaism. The second moment was literally a mountaintop experience. That is the receiving of Torah, Matan Torah, on Mount Sinai. And if you think of the Hebrew Bible as a book of a relationship trying to achieve a mountaintop, it all of a sudden becomes a little bit more clear what the text we read today is about. The most amazing, perfect moment that Jews had with their God was a mountaintop experience that was the first moment of their relationship. Think about it. Think about any relationship where the only perfect moment was the first moment, and that could never be recaptured. What kind of self-reflection would you have? What kind of self-recriminations that you could not get to that perfect moment of hearing the perfection of Torah, of everyone hearing the voice of God simultaneously? In Jewish tradition, we say it was so powerful. Not only was every Jew present, but every Jew that ever lived and every Jew would ever live was on Mount Sinai at that moment. But yet we can never go back there. We can attempt to be a part of the ongoing revelation, but to be in that first moment of lightning and clouds and thunder and the sound of a trumpet containing within it all the words of wisdom from the eternal. And if you look at the Torah, doesn't it feel like people who are trying to recapture that moment and feeling a great deal of anger, why cannot we be as perfect as we were in that moment? Because the Hebrew Bible reflects something that is hard for us to do. It looks at humans as we are and not as we want to be. The stories of our biblical heroes are not stories of ancient godmen who are standing on Mount Olympus throwing thunderbolts. They're stories of human beings doing really awful things to other human beings. David and Bathsheba, Abraham essentially selling his wife in Egypt saying, please lie and say you're my sister. Sarah sending forth Hagar and Ishmael essentially to die in the wilderness. Horrible things that, by the way, we as human beings do every day. And the reason that the Torah, the reason that the Hebrew Bible is so real and so hard to digest is because it forces us to look at ourselves. It's a mirror to the darkest part of ourselves. We call these people heroes, and they do things that if we did, we would be ostracized from society. And yet the Hebrew Bible is saying, let's look at ourselves warts and all. Let's show our heroes as the human beings that they were, or at least a reflection of humanity. And so if that's the primary value, then of course we're going to show our anger at ourselves in the same way. Of course, when we fail, we're going to write into our tradition, I will spit you out for you have bowed down in front of that which has no meaning. It is a self-criticism that is painful and real. 
And when we take it in words of translation and contrast with the Christian tradition, it seems horrific. But yet the Christian tradition has a different purpose. It doesn't mean it's better, worse, wrong, right? It has a different meaning behind it. And it can be summed up very simply. Jews stopped proselytizing 2,200 years ago. And so we are not very good marketers of our tradition. We haven't done anything with our tradition to try to make it more palatable to a larger audience because we have no interest in a larger audience of hearing it. There are 2 billion Christians in the world and there are 18 million Jews. 0.2% of the world population is Jewish. If someone comes up to me and says, I want to become a Jew, I'm required by Jewish law to say no three times. And if after three times someone keeps on coming back, I'm supposed to say, and this is right in the Talmud, you can look it up, are you nuts? Why would you want to do that? Whereas the end of book, the book of Luke contains the great commission, go forth and preach the gospel to all men. And if you look at it from that standpoint, the Hebrew Bible is an internal family argument. The Christian Bible is an attempt to bring everyone into the family. And when we are having an internal family argument, we present our lives very differently than we want to open our doors and bring people in. And it makes sense. Read the book of Romans now and understand. Beautiful book. Amazing. But it's essentially, all right, if you want to convert to Judaism, you have to get circumcised and stop eating BLTs. Not very palatable. Who's going to tell me that I can't have my BLT? So the book of Romans says, don't circumcise and eat your BLT. And it's not even being flippant. It's taking very strict laws internal to a group and then changing what is unpalatable if we bring that out to a larger group. And so in the Hebrew Bible, there is no God of wrath. There is an attempt for us to deal with the fact that as human beings, we disappoint ourselves painfully and profoundly. And we disappoint each other. And our poetry reflects that. And sometimes we need to get each other's attention. And we do that by language that's inflammatory. In the same way that if we want to get attention of those around us, sometimes we say hurtful things. Sometimes we say things we'd like to take back. Sometimes we are honest with each other in ways that we maybe shouldn't be in that moment. But sometimes if we want to improve and grow, we need those words. Sometimes being nice all the time and saying, oh, that was well done, when it actually wasn't well done, is not actually helpful. Sometimes we need to say, you can do better. And the Hebrew tradition is simply about saying, we need to do better. Peace be with you all.